Good morning. It's always a good to be here with God's people and opening up God's Word together. This morning we're going to continue in our series through the book of Ruth here upon the final chapter. And uh, for those of you who are here for the first time, I would like for us to just do a brief summary of where we have been and, in essence, where we will be going this morning. In chapter 1, we are introduced to the main characters of this story, Ruth and Naomi. And uh, Naomi flees Bethlehem, enters into the fields of Moab, and she finds there her daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, who is married to her son, Malan. And uh, there, Naomi encounters a difficult providence. Her family dies. Naomi hears that God has visited his people, and they make this journey to return back to Bethlehem. And uh, that is basically the introduction in Act 1 of the book of Ruth. In Chapter 2, we get Act 2, which is basically where Boaz and Ruth meet and providentially by God's hands. And then we come to chapter 3 where Naomi is trying to help Ruth uh, secure for her a future and she tells Ruth to marry, to go and ask Boaz to uh, marry her, uh, which Ruth does. Uh, but then uh, Ruth, uh, Boaz tells Ruth, um, I'll, I'll redeem you, but there's a problem. There, there, there's a redeemer who's closer than myself. And that is where we find ourselves, Boaz desiring to redeem Ruth, but there is an intervening factor that there is someone else before Boaz who can redeem her. So this morning, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4, and we'll be considering the first 17 verses Ruth chapter 4, the first 17 verses. Here is Boaz attempting to redeem Ruth or find redemption for Ruth. Listen to these words. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the field, country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought that I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging 
to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders of all the people, And all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata. And be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Verse 13, sorry. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more work to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. The name they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you grant us this day to be here present. We thank you, Father, because you have placed this story in the canon of Scripture, that we might behold your beauty, your glory, your majesty, and your might. We pray, Father, that we would be able to see the truths of the gospel even in this story, that we may behold Christ and his beauty and all that he has done for us and for our salvation. So we pray that you would bless our time together Make it fruitful by the power of your spirit as only you are able to do so and that this meditation may be uh, for the profit of our souls. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Have you ever wondered why there are so many stories in the Old Testament and why there's this big intervening Uh, story after story from Adam's sin to Christ's birth. Wouldn't it have been easy for God to just, as soon as as Adam sinned, send Jesus in a generation or two and save the rest of humanity from the difficult scenes that we find in the books of our Bibles? 
The problem with that scenario is that would assume that God is primarily concerned about saving us. That would assume that God's motivating factor in everything, His primary uh, goal in our existence is merely to save us. And that is not the case. We are created primarily for God's glory. And all that God does is to show us who He is in His power, beauty, and magnificence. And this scenario, if Christ would have come immediately, would have, uh, have voided God's self-disclosure. The Bible is primarily about showing us who God is. And in so doing, we get a glimpse of who we are. And that is the truth that we find in this story today. Ruth chapter 4 tells us, uh, reminds us about the miserable condition that we are in outside of Christ. It speaks about redemption and the need of a redeemer. It shows us that outside of Christ, there is no hope and there is no future for our lives. So here we are in the fourth and final act of this book. And this act is comprised primarily of two scenes. The first scene has to do with what we will denominate redemption accomplished, and the second scene will denominate redemption applied. In other words, we'll look at the legal pronouncements in the first scene, and then we'll look at the benefits of that pronouncement in the second scene. So let's look at the redemption accomplished. It says that Boaz is intending to bring about the redemption that he had promised to Ruth in the previous chapter. He is wanting to bring about this redemption for her. He understands her predicament, understands that she's in a lot of stress, understands that her financial security is in jeopardy, and he seeks to bring her rest. So he immediately goes to, up to the gate of the town And he waits there in order to see if he can find the relative that is closer to him to Naomi's family, a relative that's closer to Elimelech, the deceased husband of Naomi. And we don't know what happened. We don't know if Elimelech sold this property that belonged to him uh, before he left to Moab uh, as a last-ditch effort. Uh, Or we don't know if Naomi sold the property once she got back in order to get a little bit of resources to uh, keep her her and Ruth alive. All we know is that Naomi's land uh, needs redemption, and that land also includes Ruth. Now, at this point, you would be, uh, the one question that you might have is, what is this redemption all about? What's going on here? What are, what are we talking about, redemption? Well, redemption, we, we, we must look back a little bit. Remember Abraham, he's promised, God promised, his, promises him land and a nation. So the land of Israel was key to the fulfillment of that promise. And the law of redemption governed the land aspect of that promise. 
In Joshua, we observe that God distributes the land of Israel among 12 tribes, and each tribe is allotted a specific amount of land. And that land had to be kept within that tribe because they were supposed to be good stewards of the land that God gave to them. So if the land went outside the tribe or went outside a particular clan, then it was the duty of the family members, of the relatives, to reclaim that land once they were made aware that it was outside the boundaries of the clan. And that is what we have here. It seems that Elimelech sold his property, or Naomi sold his property. It's outside of the clan, and now it has to be reclaimed. And that is what Boaz is telling this man to do. This man is referred to, if you look here, as friend in verse 1. And Boaz tells him to turn aside so that he can explain to him and propose to him this legal transaction. And uh, once Boaz makes this man aware, there's a small court scene formed with the elders of the city at the gate of the city. And he says to him, redeem it because it needs redemption. This friend, or we can say uh, Mr. So-and-so, it's a, the Hebrew title for this person, it's, um, it's equivalent to what, you know, it's Poloni Almoni, which is uh, similar to what we would do. It, it's like they, they both rhyme, so it's like our using of Joe Schmo or something like that. It's like Mr. So-and-so. It's what we'll call him just for the sake of our time together this morning. It tells us that Mr. So-and-so accepts the, the deal. He said, Boaz, tell him, redeem it. And if you, um, if you don't, let me know because you're the first person in line. And in the end of verse 4, he says, I'll redeem it. And so he is enthusiastic. He understands, uh, like anyone who uh, is in an agrarian society that depends on land, he's ecstatic he's like yay that's more land for me more land means more crops more crops means more produce more produce means what more money so he looks at the roi he knows he has to take care of naomi for a couple years but she is old almost good as dead she's like well i'll be able to help her out uh, for a little bit but he is invested into the property He's like, sign me up. You can almost see him get out his phone, call his asset manager. Hey, I got this parcel number ready for you. I'm going to add this to my portfolio. But he didn't check the T's and the C's. Now, when I was uh, tasked with um, purchasing services from a company to do the inspections in the fire alarm systems in where I work, my manager told me, he says, before you agree to any proposal, make sure you look at the T's and the C's. Now, you might not know what the T's and the C's are. Michael might know what the T's and the C's are. The T's and the C's are terms and conditions because that explains in detail what you're agreeing to. So what we have here is that when he agrees, Boaz tells him, but there's a condition to your agreeing. And he tells them in verse 5 that the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi and acquire it, you're also going to acquire Ruth the Moabite. And 
upon hearing this, the Mr. So-and-so is no longer enthusiastic about what's going on. You see, if Ruth was to be acquired, it throws a wrench into the system because his duty was to give birth to a child and that child that was born from Ruth and Mr. So-and-so would take the inheritance of the land that he had that he would claim so he was like well this is no longer a good deal because the money that I thought I was going to be acquiring is no longer uh, in the picture so he decides not to redeem her and or buy the land from Naomi or acquire Ruth for himself he looked at Ruth and he said you're a liability Because I don't know what's going to happen and I don't want to jeopardize my inheritance. I don't want to jeopardize my money. I don't want to jeopardize my portfolio. So he backs out. Mr. So-and-so was okay with taking care of Naomi for a couple years, but he was unwilling to accept Ruth. Uh, From a pure materialistic standpoint of view, the property wasn't worth the investment. And he, in essence, tells Boaz, you take the risk of acquiring this land. Now, when we hear this, Boaz, you know, verses 9 and 10 tell us that Boaz does, he takes the risk. But, but it's good to stop here and make several observations the first observation that it would be good to make here is that it, it is weird or interesting, rather, that the man who is the redeemer, the closer redeemer, is left nameless, a uh, generic Poloni Almoni, a generic Mr. So-and-so. That is weird because this book is filled with names. In the first five verses, we get six names. And if you read this chapter, you're surrounded by many names, Perez, Tamar, Rachel, Leah, Obed, and Jesse, and David. But here, there is a reluctance by the narrator to name Mr. So-and-so. Now, this is interesting because one of the curses for an Israelite would be to lose their name. Because in the ancient Near East, in, in, in the Israelites, they didn't talk a lot, or the Hebrew Bible doesn't talk a lot about the afterlife. But it does talk about living on in the legacy of one's name. And that was important for the people of Israel. That's why when Saul knows David is going to be king, he He tells him, hey, David, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. It is through one's name that you lived on in legacy. You honored someone's legacy by continuing their name. And Mr. So-and-so didn't want to do that for Malon, who was the husband of Ruth, who died before they were able to have a child. And the narrator wants to make a point here, and I think the point here is this. Those who care more about this present life 
are forgotten in the next. They are left nameless and without a legacy. Mr. So-and-so wanted to be a big part of a small story instead of being a small part of a big story. Look how many times Mr. So-and-so refers to himself in verse 6. If you count his referring to himself, you'll, say, you'll count six times. He was after me, myself, and I. That is contrasted to Boaz. Boaz had a lot going for him. He was a worthy and industrious man. He was a wealthy man. Yet look at what he does. What does Boaz do? He takes on the liability of Ruth. He understands that the future of these two widows are at stake. And he jeopardizes his own future for the sake of a widow that is an Israelite and a foreign widow. He reasoned differently. He understood that the kingdom of God operates on a different plane than this momentary and passing world. Boaz put the interests of Ruth and Naomi before his own interests. Boaz understood that the ROI, the return on investment, probably wasn't in his favor or his benefit. He was understanding that what brought, what brought God glory wasn't a stacked portfolio doing and obeying God's commands. He didn't perpetuate his name. He didn't seek to perpetuate his name, but the name of another. Yet, whose name, is, who, whose name do we find in the genealogies, genealogies of Jesus? As the elders pointed out to me this past Wednesday. What the name that we find is not Elimelech, is not Malon, is not Mr. So-and-so, it's Boaz. Boaz, his legacy lived on because he wasn't focused on himself. Boaz sought to give glory and honor to God. The question is, how are we living? Are we living in this present age for our glory and for the propagation of our praise or our Um, blessing or are we seeking fundamentally to bring glory to God Paul often talked about living in two ages the present age and the age to come and what should inform our thinking as Christians should be the age to come I know that we live here in this momentary life and it is not wrong to be concerned for the cares of this life. God is concerned for our momentary cares. But what should be of ultimate importance in our lives isn't this momentary life. It's a life to come. I used this illustration before. um, I think in our Bible, uh, our book study uh, a couple weeks ago, but I think I'm going to use it again just because it was helpful in how we are to think about our lives in with with 
the future reality that is available to us in Christ. We all, I, I don't know how many of you have seen uh, Back to the Future. Anyone? Okay. Dave is nodding yes. <laughs> all right. So Marty McFly is sent back to 1955, and in 1955, he meets his teenage dad and his teenage mom. But how is Marty McFly acting in 1955? Is he acting like he's a citizen, a product of 1955, or is he acting like he's a product or a citizen of 1985? He is operating under the reality of 1985, and that's why when his mom Lorraine is attracted to him in 1955. He's concerned. He knows that if he messes something up in the past, he's going to mess up his future. And I know that that won't happen to us, but the reality is this, that he is thinking and operating with a 1985 mindset back in 1955. We are in the present we are to live with the mindset of the future. We are to live as though who have Christ and the inheritance that we have in him as the primary focus of our lives. We must live not like Mr. So-and-so, interested in himself only in his portfolio. He is, we are to be interested in what God is interested and in what will be true because the reality is that this world is fading and is soon to pass away. So back to our story here, uh, verse 7 tells us that the confirmation of, gives us a brief explanation of how these transactions happen, which is kind of weird. They took off a sandal and uh, I guess gave it to someone else. I mean, uh, I was talking to Evelyn, and uh, she was telling me that the laws of acquiring property in Indiana and Illinois are different. So I guess every place has a way of acquiring property. Uh, I'm, I'm just glad I didn't have to give my sandal when I uh, bought a home. But here, Boaz is, he intends to redeem, and he redeems the land uh, from the hand of Naomi and acquires for himself Ruth. And the witnesses, upon seeing that this transaction was ratified, they bless. They say, may the Lord make the woman, that is Ruth, who is coming into your house, may he make her like Rachel. And remember, Rachel was what? She was barren for many years. And um, up until this point, Ruth has also been barren because she had been married to Malon for 10 years in the fields of Moab, but hadn't been able to give forth a son be like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel may you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah now notice how the witnesses link Ruth to Tamar now Tamar her story comes up in Genesis 38 but their stories are similar Tamar was a Canaanite Ruth was a Moabite, both outside God's covenantal family, and both acquire a child through, uh, uh, through uh, what they call a leveret marriage, which is basically when an Israelite 
who had a wife and he dies before he's able to have a child through that, the way that in the land of Israel, the law was that a relative was supposed to come and marry that woman and bring forth a child for the deceased brother. And this is how both of these women come about. I mean, the children of both of these women come about. So they're linked together in this uh, uh, interesting fashion. They're outside of God's covenantal family, but through similar means, they're brought into God's covenantal family. And at the end, redemption is accomplished. Boaz reclaimed the land that was in jeopardy and in the process brought relief and security to two destitute widows. Now, when we look at the plight of these women and the misery, misery and insecurity that Naomi and Ruth faced, we understand that these things were, these, this misery and insecurity were taken away by Boaz. And it gives us a glimpse of the gospel. We are just like Ruth and Naomi. Their stories are our stories. Like Naomi, we have and many times willfully abandoned God, God's purposes for our lives. We have rebelled against him like Naomi when she fled to the fields of Moab. We are like Ruth. In ourselves, we are born, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are born as children of wrath outside of God's covenantal promises. And yet, from this story, we see that redemption is found for these two women in one man. And so our redemption is found in one man. That is Christ Jesus. Like Boaz, Christ didn't look at the ROI, the return on investment on us. He didn't mind to love the unlovable. He didn't choose us because we had done things right. He looked us and he understood that we have all kinds of liabilities. He knew that we, uh, in the world's standards, we weren't a safe investment. But that didn't stop him from choosing us from before the foundation of the world, before we had done right or wrong. He didn't look to his own interest, the Bible says, but Forsaken his own interest, he clothed himself with human flesh, he became a man, became near, became close to sinners, and he redeemed those who God had given to him. This is the beauty of the gospel. Just like Ruth is transferred from a membership in the Moabite society into the Israelite family, we were transferred through Christ's redemption from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's own Son. He died in our place, claimed us as His own, that we don't have to live in the bondage of the misery of sin, fearing the tyranny of the devil or the terror of death. That is what was accomplished through Christ's redemption. But then we get to see number two. Here we see the benefits of the redemption that was accomplished in the previous verses. It tells us that Boaz marries Ruth. And in in verse 13, it tells us that Ruth became his wife and she 
the Lord gave her a conception. And it seems that, that that curse that she had for 10 years where she couldn't bear a, a child in Moab has been displaced. Fast forward nine months and Ruth gives birth to a son. It's ironic that in this section, who is blessed is not Ruth. The one who's blessed here is Naomi. And, and it's pretty interesting to observe how this blessing unfolds. Look at verse uh, 15 where the people who are blessing Naomi remind her of her daughter-in-law. It says, this daughter-in-law is a daughter-in-law who loves you. She is better than seven sons. And why would that be the case? The reason is, is because through Ruth, God filled Naomi's emptiness. The emptiness that Naomi experienced at the end of chapter, or, or uh, verse five of chapter one, is here reversed. Now she is full. But Naomi's blessing is unique in insofar that they focus, they make this strong tie between Naomi and this son of Ruth. If you didn't read nothing else and you just read verses 14 to 17, you would honestly think that this son belongs to Naomi and not to Ruth. But let's look at it again at this son born to Ruth who has become a benefit to Naomi. This son is declared to be the redeemer of Naomi. He is the one who is going to restore her soul and return life to her. That, that is the words that are used, a restorer of life. And that word restore is the same word that the psalmist used in Psalm 23 when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, for he leads me beside still waters and he restores or he refreshes my soul. This son born to Ruth was going to be a restorer of life because the predicament, the sadness that had embraced Naomi and had covered her in anguish and misery was being vanquished by the birth of this son. And then notice in verse 17 that it says that the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born not to Ruth, but to Naomi. Through this son, the bitterness that Naomi had experienced throughout these several years has been done away with. They named him Obed. And Obed was taking away the bitterness and bringing joy. And that's, those are the benefits that we have, that we see that Naomi acquires through this redemption. When we look at our benefits through our redemption in Christ, they are much superior. Uh, We don't just merely get the bitterness taken away from us because of the benefits that we have through our redemption in Christ. We get much more. We get justification. That means we have a right standing with God, that we don't have to fear judgment, that we have been declared righteous. 
we get sanctification. That means that we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. We get soon-to-be glorification, that we will be delivered once and for all from indwelling sin. But this morning, I want to focus on another benefit, and that is adoption. Through Christ's redemption and application of that redemption to our lives by God's Spirit, we have been reconciled with God. That means that the enmity, the wrath that God had towards us, the, He was disposed toward us in wrath. He is no longer disposed to us in that fashion. Previously, we were enemies of God. We were at enmity with Him. But that has been removed. And now we have been reconciled. His wrath has been assuaged. And now He is favorably disposed to us. So much so that He doesn't call us servants or just mere creatures. He calls us sons and daughters adopted into His family. And just like Naomi took hold of Obed in her lap and caressed him and nursed him, so does God take us as his children and treats us tenderly. Several summers ago, one of my nieces stayed over our house. She's from Ohio. Um, A couple years ago, they would do this uh, quite often. Nathan, Ohio, yes. Uh, And she, she, she... Stayed with us, and it seemed that she was scared, you know. She couldn't fall asleep, so we had to turn on all the lights. But she still seemed scared, so she knocked on the door one night and said, hey, can I sleep, like, right next to the bed? And uh, we said, fine. But she was still tossing and turning. And finally, I woke her up, you know, I, I, I told her, hey, get, if you want, just get in the bed with, with my wife, um, and uh, go to sleep. And uh, I went into the living room, came back a little bit later, and there she was, fast asleep. And what was the difference? She was three feet away, still tossing and turning. Then she was three inches away, and she was no longer tossing and turning. It was the presence of my wife that assured her that everything was okay. And that is the assurance that we have as God's adopted children. That no matter what comes in our lives, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. My niece was three feet away, still tossing and turning, three inches away. It's that presence. That was the difference. And as we participate through union with Christ in the intimate communion of the Godhead, we have this same assurance that we have in heaven a Father who cares for us, who will never leave us or abandon us. And we have that benefit not through our own doing, not through you know, social benefits that we have through our government. We have that benefit only through the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. And through Christ's Spirit, as those who have been adopted by God into His family, we can never be closer to God than we are right now. And that is a source of comfort and true delight. 
This morning we have seen that we have the uh, redemption accomplished through Christ and the benefits of that redemption in Christ. And I pray that as you go about this week, you would remember that one of those benefits is that you are God's child. If you have placed your hope in Jesus Christ and you have sought him to be your true and only redeemer, then the encouragement for you today is find your source of satisfaction, hope, and comfort in him and him alone. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you because in Christ we truly marvel at the redemption that we have and that we have been brought near, we have been brought close. We are no longer strangers and aliens, foreigners to your promises, but that we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. What a marvelous redemption we have in your Son. I pray, Father, that we would delight in that redemption, knowing that it is full and secure. It is through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.